Hi, this is Dr. Timothy Bartell, and this is the Poetry Corner podcast at the St. Constantine School. We are finally moving into the 4th century AD. Now, if you know much about the development of Christian theology, the 4th century just has this flourishing of Christian theological writing. Athanasius of Alexandria, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nazianzus, John Chrysostom, Augustine of Hippo, all these guys are writing in the 4th century. It's, it's my favorite century of theology, and it's kind of tied with the 19th century for my favorite century of poetic writing. And I want to I wanna talk about the first major poet of the 4th century, who actually we have to go back into the 3rd century to really talk about him. This guy's name is Lactantius, also known as Fermianus. As this us at the end of each of his names uh, might indicate, he is a Latin-speaking, Latin-writing Roman. But we have to remember that the Roman Empire in the late 3rd, early 4th century isn't just centered around Rome. More and more, the Roman Empire is seeing that the East, both the North African East and places like Alexandria, places like Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey today, and even places like Antioch, Jerusalem, these are very important places. And so imperial power is more and more looking east and trying to move east. We even have the imperial court who will kind of take off from being at Rome and be further east. Ravenna is a place where the imperial court would often go really for centuries. By the mid-300s, of course, we're going to have the rise of a new city in the east, a new Roman capital in the east, Constantinople. That hasn't happened yet when Lactantius is beginning his career, but it will in his lifetime. So Lactantius was a scholar. He wrote on many different topics, both Christian and non-Christian. And in fact, the emperor Diocletian favored him. Now, Diocletian, uh, we know as the last of the great ruthless emperors who persecuted the Christians. But Diocletian seems to, at least Jerome says, he kind of favored Lactantius, probably because of Lactantius's great oratorical and scholarly skill, and kind of set him up with a cushy job as a scholar. And in fact, Diocletian passes on the imperial throne eventually to Constantine the Great. Now, Constantine, as we know, is the man who signed the Edict of Milan, who wrote the Edict of Milan, and legalized Christianity in 313. In fact, if you listen closely to my introduction, here I am at the St. Constantine School talking about the Emperor Constantine. Constantine is, without a doubt, one of the most important rulers in all of history, especially in Roman Christian history, because he fundamentally changes the Roman attitude toward Christianity and throughout his life goes from being uh, a, a somewhat ruthless, kind of what we would expect, you know, backstabbing, you know, does anything to get ahead, power-hungry pagan, to, especially through the influence of his Christian mother, realizing his need for Christ and his belief in Christ. And by the end of his life, he is changed from this kind of typical ruthless Roman emperor to someone who looks more like uh, someone who's living the life of Christ. So Lactantius, uh, he served under Diocletian, and he ended up being a tutor to Constantine's son, He's a very, very favored writer. And in fact, we talked about Clement of Alexandria last time being the chief pedagogue uh, of the philosophical school at Alexandria. That's a pretty exalted role. 
academically uh, in the intellectual world. Lactantius is even more favored than that. He's the chief scholar, the chief tutor to emperors and princes. This is a high exalted position, but Lactantius, especially before Constantine comes into power, is in a bit of a pickle. He's a Christian. He, in fact, has extant writings where he defends very boldly and beautifully, especially the Divine Institutes. He talks about what does it mean to be a Christian? Why is Christianity true and paganism false? These are writings that are, that are a little dangerous to just sling around. And I don't know. I'd be interested in learning more about how Lactantius was able to write these things for Christians and not get in trouble with Diocletian. It's in his poetry that we see some of his slyness. And I want to read you the beginning, the middle, and the end of a long poem that he wrote called The Phoenix. Lactantius isn't primarily a poet. He's primarily an orator and, and a writer of prose treatises. But The Phoenix is a very fascinating poem. Uh, it's a couple hundred lines long, longer certainly than Clement's little ditties about Christ at the end of his uh, book, The Teacher, which we looked at last time. But like Clement, Lactantius is intentionally writing in a very standard classical meter. He's writing in what we would call elegaic meter, which is alternating lines of dactylic hexameter and dactylic pentameter. So that's five dactylic feet and six dactylic feet alternating. So hexameter starts, six dactylic feet, then pentameter five, then dactylic hexameter six, then dactylic pentameter five. And these are long lines. So dactyls, if you remember, as we've talked about probably a number of episodes ago, dactyls are series of three syllables, wherein the first is long or stressed, and the second two are short or unstressed. So in English, it would sound like da-da-da. Or in Greek, if we're using long and short O sounds, it would be like you notice that that last sixth foot was different. Often the last foot of a line of dactylic hexameter uh, was only two lines long. It was either a trochee, stress unstressed or long short, uh, or it was a spondy, long long or stress stressed. I'm going to read to you the beginning, the middle, and the end of this poem the phoenix. Attend to the rhythm of it. It's pretty fun. Also, get ready for it to be a bit bizarre. There is a fortunate place in the furthest domain of the Orient. There by the gates of eternity's poles lie wide open. Nor is it touched by the sun with extremes of the summer or winter, rather with spring as it pours from the axis of day. There in the groves of the forest, the singular phoenix resides. After her death, she is born and returns to the living. Death is her sexual power, for only past death does she blossom. Birth is begotten in her through the action of dying. She is the offspring of self, of self, of herself both the father and daughter, nurse of herself, of herself both the child and foster. Self she is truly, but changed. For herself she is not. She has gained life everlasting through crossing the threshold of death. What a strange poem. Now, if you know anything about mythology, or if you've read Harry Potter, 
uh, and the Prisoner of Azkaban or the Order of the Phoenix or the Chamber of Secrets, you're familiar with this mythical creature, the Phoenix. Uh, the Phoenix is a bird who, at least in more contemporary stories like Harry Potter, once it gets old, it bursts into flame and all that's left is ash. And then a little, a little baby bird is born out of the ash. In fact, we owe the Phoenix myth to probably the Egyptians. The early Christians in several places uh, in the first couple centuries mentioned the Egyptian legend of the phoenix. It's actually Clement of Rome, who is probably the second bishop of Rome, who first mentions the phoenix as an example of resurrection observable in nature. So when Lactantius writes this, he's not inventing the idea of the phoenix. People would have known of this. But he waxes poetic and waxes very suggestive about it. Death is her sexual power, for only past death does she blossom. Birth is begotten in her through the action of dying. Unlike other birds where there's a mommy and a daddy bird and they make little baby birds, it is death of the individual phoenix that begets life in the next phoenix. It's almost an asexual reproduction through death. Lactantius obviously is fascinated by this. Birth is begotten in her through the action of dying. She is the offspring of self of herself, both the father and daughter. You get this idea that there's something about death in her that is the catalyst for new life. Okay, kind of similar to other things people have said about the phoenix before. She is her own offspring. You might even say that she is both her own father or mother, her own parent, and her own child. She is one being, but seems to be both parent and child. Okay, even more interesting. Nurse of herself, of herself both the child and foster. Self she is truly, but changed for herself she is not. This is where it gets most paradoxical, as if it hasn't been paradoxical enough. She is both herself and not herself. Why? She has gained life everlasting through crossing the threshold of death. She was just herself, a mortal bird, but now by passing beyond death into new life, she has gained everlasting life. Okay, so there's this being who through death gives life, who seems to give life to herself, nothing else gives life to her. She's both a father and a child at once, but one being but kind of having these at least two personages, she gains not just new life, but life everlasting. Wait a minute, is this about Jesus? Well, traditionally, yes, that is how it's been interpreted. Now, it would be a little silly, I think, to then say, well, Jesus isn't female, or Jesus doesn't burn up in flames and resurrect. Well, okay, it, we can't stretch the metaphor too far, or the analogy or allegory too far, but this idea that there is a being that dies but of its own power comes back to life and bestows life everlasting and is involved in a weird relationship of one being and father and child personages, this is clearly we can say in retrospect, this is clearly influenced by and reminiscent of and suggestive of Christian theology of Christ's death and resurrection and life-giving power, of God's being one being but having both God the Father and God the Son as separate persons in one being. 
this is, well, is this Lactantius being sly? Is this him writing Christian poetry without ever coming out and saying, yes, I believe in Jesus. He died to save you from your sins. Believe in him. But is, is he sort of throwing coded messages to Christians so Christians can read this and think about and meditate on and be touched by the beauty and paradox of God's love, death, and life. But also, you know, if this is grabbed by the Roman officials, they're not going to say, oh, you're reading Christian literature, we'll throw you to the lions. If this is so, if this is a sort of sly Christian allegory that suggests but never comes out and claims to be explicitly Christian— uh, it's actually one of the last documents of its kind in the early church because Lactantius, as I mentioned, he serves under Diocletian but then ends up serving Constantine and being tutor to Constantine's son in an age when finally Christianity is legal. So the Phoenix, it's a very odd poem. Uh, the sections I skipped give a lot of detail about the place and the setting that the phoenix lives in, the, the forest it lives in, and all the other birds who live there. It's, it's a very, very beautiful kind of almost like fantasy literature going into this, this fantastic eastern exotic realm where these you know, majestic and mythical beasts live. You can go check it out. Um, you can find a translation of the phoenix actually online for free. It was translated in the 1800s. If you look up the works of Lactantius, uh, you can find it. What I focused on here is where we get this talking about Christianity in a contemporary age where the contemporaries of Lactantius might have wanted to kill him if he was proselytizing, but is in fact very inspiring to us even as Christians today in its Christian imagination, its sort of baptizing pagan myth in Christian doctrine. And if it is the last of its kind, which I would argue it is, it's this moment where Christianity hasn't yet fully flowered into poetry, but is almost flowering into poetry. Now, you might say, but Dr. Bartell, we just looked in our last episode at a very explicitly Christian poem by Clement of Alexandria. Well, yes, context is important. Clement is living in Alexandria. The pedagogue was written for Christians, given to Christians, perhaps at a time when persecution, maybe in Alexandria, wasn't as vehement. Lactantius is writing under the nose of Diocletian. It's, it's pretty important that he stay safe. But in writing this allegorical Phoenix story, he actually provides the model for Christian allegory going forward in Christian literature. The great Christian allegories will be, of course, things like Dante's Divine Comedy, Pilgrim's Progress, a little more obscure, but certainly something everyone should read, um, Spencer's Fairy Queen. But even earlier, we have things like Prudentius's uh, Psychomachia or Battle of the Soul, which we might talk about in a further episode, which is written in the early 5th century A.D., so Lactantius is both the last of the veiled Christian writings because of legal problems, one of the last obviously slyly illegal voices, but he also 
invents this model of Christian allegory, which will have so much influence uh, on later patristic and medieval and Renaissance writing. Of course, the great, the great work on this, which everyone who, who is interested in the Inkling should definitely read, is C.S. Lewis's first major literary critical book, The Allegory of Love, where he traces the development of allegory really from proto-Christian uh, Greco-Roman sources all the way up through the great medieval and Renaissance poetry that he was an expert in. Lactantius, though, I think needs to be more thought of as someone who really creates and enables allegorical Christian poetry to be written. And he doesn't really wear it on his sleeve. As I said, this is a poem of several hundred lines. It's only in these last lines that we start getting these really obvious words, offspring of self, begotten, father and child. It takes a long time to get there. Lactantius, as all great writers need to be, invests us in a setting that is so lush and so visceral and so believable that we're ready for the bigger, deeper, maybe more majestic truths when we get there because we've bought into the world and the setting that he's created. And this is very important for writers. I think it, sometimes it's what people complain about in something like Pilgrim's Progress, which is certainly a masterpiece and, and I think will always be read. But sometimes people say Pilgrim's Progress wears its allegory on its sleeve a little too much. You know, you meet a, a character and they're named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Uh, hmm, I wonder what they're a symbol for. Lactantius achieves in the Phoenix something more subtle and I think thus something more, more believable and also just more strange. Thanks for hanging out with us as we talk about early Christian poetry. I know I've talked about some poems that are a little odd, but they're really paving the way for some of the more major works that are going to come out in the fourth century. I'm very excited about our next couple episodes. We're going to get into early Christian epic and early Christian hymns, which really take these seeds that are planted by the Odes of Solomon, Melito of Sardis, Clement of Alexandria, and Lactantius, writing about Christian theology in borrowing from Hebrew and Greco-Roman formal traditions, and they're really going to put them to work in, in works that are very explicitly Christian and works that also bring us further into exploration of the intersection of theology and the gospel and form. I look forward to talking about those with you. Thank you for hanging out with this odd Phoenix poem. Have a great day.